white privilege is that we don't have the right to have suffering and that we aren't supposed to because everybody else has it so much worse and there's a different kind of suffering that happens in your Volvo when you're on your phone and you haven't actually talked to a person um, or you walk by your kids and you don't have a relationship with your kids or you don't actually have a genuine connection not having real needs because I feel like connection is formed by needs and when you don't have a need because everything's getting dropped off and delivered by a certain person you're paying it's like what are the actual people in your life for like how, what are you depending on other people for it and like like desperation is a form of connection that's pretty strong need actually. need it that's an excellent point need is real i think it's i think this is where we're really driving off the cliff yeah. as as a as a species is because this idea that if we have all our needs met then we'll be happy and we can do fun things or something but there is that basic that's really beautiful the way you said that that needs kind of drive connection and without the needs you lose the connection and without connection i don't know what there is although i I will say if i like won the lottery or just had a lot of money dumped on me and like met all those needs i'd probably be pretty happy (laughs) like i'd be i would be totally happy with that you know for a minute that's what you think I could, but do, the things, I could do a lot. You can do a lot. You can do a lot. I don't know. I never want to win the lottery. Oh, Same. I, no I don't way. want it. No. I find like I want to be occupied. You guys with can buy me tickets. Then. <laughs> my little problems are so good. Like they're so like they cause the perfect amount of stress. Like I feel like they're real, you know, I'm like my health insurance. I'm going to get it. I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to feed the baby or whatever. And it's like the bigger your life is, it's like, oh, my CEO, I have 20. 20 employees like I see these people and it's just like the the products that they're making are so dispensable like if the economy busts like nobody is gonna want like both the parents have their own companies and like nobody's gonna want what they're selling yeah you know what I mean and I'm just like having I don't know I'm not like saying like simplicity because some things that are very complica- complicated are like really important but like I personally I'm scared of like making my life have too many things in it that don't actually matter well, it's a question. So, like, what actually yeah. makes you happy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, I, I picture that, like, if I had, if I did win the lottery, I'd just, like, and this is because of who I am and, like, what I was brought up in and what I do now. Like, I would just buy land and, like, build stuff, you know? You just work on stuff. Isn't that what you're doing now? I mean, now I'm not working on the stuff I want to work on. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have, like, a, my own full shop. You know, like it's kind of like I'd love to. That's what retirement's that. for. I dude. know, right? Yeah. I don't. I don't know if I'll retire. Like my dad's sixty-six. He's there. Both my parents aren't retired yet. I don't know if retirement's in the the burger. Uh, I'm never uh, gonna retire. Yeah, in the burger doctrine, but I mean, yeah, I guess I'm doing that now. But it'd be like I could just like you can make stuff. You know, I could build a fucking boat. Would that be cool? Like take the time. My stepdad, he built. Uh, he built a boat. I, you know, he did it while he was working at a shipyard. But he built a 24-foot boat in our backyard over the course of eight years, and then he and my mom sailed on it for a little while. Girl, you want to make? You can make a lot of money building boats. I had, I had a, I had a friend. They had a boat building family. They, they built yeah. sailing boats. It's they starting made, to. It's huge money. They sell those boats for like two hundred thousand dollars. Oh, oh, oh my God, more. Yeah, yeah but it's starting. Well, to this is get, in uh, Massachusetts, not in San Francisco. It would be five hundred thousand. Yeah, it. it's starting to get out. Well, I don't want to say outsourced, but uh, Turkey is becoming a huge boat building uh, epicenter just because it's 
ungodly cheap to do boat building over there. You know, wow. you can throw cheap labor at it and get the job done way quicker, way under budget. So the place my stepfather was working for, um, pretty like a pretty well known wooden like wooden shipbuilder in Maine. Um, they like closed down three of their buildings, three of their facilities, sold one off and like had to lay off a ton of people because it's like nobody not a lot of people in the world are splurging for like 5.8 million dollar wooden sailboats well you don't need a lot of them you don't need a lot of them if you have that i mean so these people they had a family business they had it was the father and two brothers and um and they built these custom yachts yeah yeah you know like 30 40 foot sailboats and it'd take a couple years and people want it because they would visit them and everything you know the teak and this is going to be this special way and they bent all the wood and do all like that you know, I believe that we don't have a dream without being able to have the power to make it come true. Like, you really want to build boats, dude? Like, you can do that. You don't have to win the lottery. Yeah. No, well, what's well, the was... bigger dream? Comedy? Would you rather do comedy, or do you rather would you rather build furniture? Because furniture seems like an actual talent that could actually make money, whereas comedy is like drink tickets. Right, right, right. Until <laughs> until you get your Netflix special. Even when you get your Netflix special, at you this buy point, one nice outfit and then it's back to drink tickets. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. It's like, I don't know. I I haven't I haven't figured that out yet. You've been soul searched that no. far enough yet. But you like both of them. You're oh yeah. It's working out fine. Everything's cool. Right now everything's cool. There you go. Until I have a baby. Uh, it's are you nice gonna to have, have a baby? No, I I every morning stand in front of the microwave for like five minutes trying to <laughs> trying to reduce that chance. Yeah. You love that. <laughs> that was hilarious. He did. He spit up over that one. Oh my goodness. Microwave my balls. <laughs> <laughs> Cook them little fishies up. Yeah. My mom used to do this thing with us called the attention store, and it was when we were, like, upset about not getting something we really wanted. And she just, she still does this with me and my other siblings. And she's just like, well, if you had everything, time and money wasn't an issue, like, what is it that you really trying to do? And you just talk for, like, ten minutes about your fantasy, like, in the way you were just doing now. And it's, like, this really cool practice, and it ends up, sometimes building gratitude, but also just like, oh, I could probably do that. You know, like I wanted to get into comedy and I was just like, ah, and then it's like, oh, you can actually, it's slower and it's like more at stake and more at risk than like your little dream that you paint. But it's interesting to be like, well, what is it that I really want? You know, and sometimes it's like, oh, I want a vacation in a hot place. And you're like, well, you could probably do that if you, if you save up and, you know, call a phone a friend or something. I don't know. It's just, mm-hmm. just like a, the attention store sometimes like when you're feeling like i don't know like stretched and you want more money <laughs> that's a really beautiful thing yeah yeah i don't know I, I i sometimes joke about it a lot with my sisters like we'll be bitching about something and one of us will be like attention store you'll be like shut up you know <laughs> like it, but it is it is something because i'm like what like, I don't like being, a, like, a maid. I don't like feeling class consciousness every day. Or, like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't... I'm in, like, this half-hot-not world all the time. And I'm like, well, I'm... I think I'm happier than the people that are that I lived that as a so, as a maid. Yeah. Um, and so... And, it, you know, it was really good preparation for me. Um, it was good preparation for me for what I'm doing now. And um, mm. just... As far as being able to be happy with what is, with what I have, and and outside, you know, we were talking about the manly man thing. To me, like, I call those masks. Mm. 
like they're, they're these things that we wear and class is a thing that we wear and there's a you know that that kind of protects us it kind of can tell us who we think we should be and so we don't have to do the work to actually check it out and see who we really are we can just pretend to be this little cutter cookie cutter thing that we put on ourselves and uh, people want to put it on us too you know people like always assume i'm like a gay vegan and like sometimes i just let it happen you know like i'm not trying for that look or i'm not trying for that vibe i get that all the time too (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes it's like more useful to just let their assumptions stick absolutely or like people think this is my baby and i'm like yep like it's a gay baby like whatever i just don't care where their assumptions are but like it's so it is so powerful because once i assume the lie that's been on me in like a a short moment like it's so impactful it's so like if i pretend like this is my baby like it changes than when i say i'm the nanny like who and how i relate to that person so much isn't that interesting yeah and it's like this sometimes i do it on purpose you know like i pretend like i'm the mom on purpose i have stand up about it but like it because of the way people treat you differently mother's day is so fun the whole week of mother's day when you're a nanny is the best just yeah. take it that yeah. whole week. Just take it. You're taking it. <laughs> like, people... Yes, I am a great mom. You're right. I'm the best mom you've ever seen, aren't I? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, like on like the bus. The act of mothering. I don't know. So it's just yeah, like the roles people put on you versus who you are. And sometimes it can it can like tilt who you think you are. Like in your core, you're like, wait, what do I actually believe? Like, am I just toting the party line because I look like a party line? <laughs> That's interesting, right? Yeah. To expand our possibilities yeah. of who we might be. So. Um, did you guys, so you knew you were coming to a therapy thing. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have anything that you wanted to work on? Not, not really up front. I, I've had an interesting, I've had an interesting relationship in therapy throughout my life. I, the first time I went was probably when I was like eight or nine, uh, with my mom just after my folks split up. And, but that was like, you know, you're a kid and I think I was just like drawing Right. crayons on paper or whatever play tic-tac-toe or whatever. yeah 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 play tic-tac-toe it's like well, how do you feel i'm like i don't know dude right weird <laughs> <laughs> weird dog my dad's not here anymore like what do you want me to say right uh and then i tried uh <clears throat> somewhat recently the online therapy Hello. talk space i don't know if you've heard of that or, or I, have. I tried it and i was a lot of what i had started it's like all text-based and a lot of what i had gone into was um kind of wealth gap and like struggling i have a lot of like wealthy friends i'm dating a rather like affluent young woman uh and so it's like uh, always feeling kind of like a struggle to keep up or like meet there like meet people spending or like oh they're all going out like okay well i can go out but maybe i'll take out another credit card so i can go hang out more um and like, I just remember getting a text back from this therapist. It was like, well, if you care about that, like, why don't you just become like a hedge fund manager? And I was like, I was like, if you think that's how the world works, like you shouldn't be giving people life advice because that's so naive and like, right. Bananas. Just become wealthy. Yeah. You can yeah. Solve your it's problems. such an right. advice. It was like advice that you didn't ask for. It's just so different from what a therapist. Yeah. I like advice. It was funny because I like I like blue. It was like all text. So I'm like, this isn't real. So I was like, you're fucking dumbass. Like, like, Trolling the therapist. Yeah, I was like, that's fucking. And she's like, you should probably find a new uh, person to talk to. I was like, yeah, of course, obviously. Obviously. Uh, but I have been seeing uh, 
this one doctor in uh, in Portland now who's from Boston mm-hmm. um, in my network. <laughs> Uh, it's been decent, but I go like semi-regularly and we kind of talk for a little bit, but I don't, I've never felt that I was on the, um, like on the precipice of collapse or major anxiety attacks. So I go in and we chat for an hour and then I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of like, all right, right now. I think it, I like depression, anxiety ebbs and flows for me. So it's, you know, you're catching me on a good week. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know what to talk about. I'm having a good time. Okay. We might poke it to, do you have anything that you want to work on? Well, honestly, like if I went, okay, there's, if I went to therapist right now, the narcissist performer in me is like, well, how about, maybe we could arrange something. You just ask me questions about my life. And then whatever you think is interesting, keep probing at it. Because I love talking about myself <laughs> and my stories. And it's just like a narcissistic interview of like, well, what's interesting? Interesting, And it's like the opposite of what you're supposed to do in therapy, which is like, or maybe. But um, what's interesting about my story is what I'm trying to look for right now is former because I like storytelling. And I think I have a weird past. Um, so there's that. But also like in what I want, I am very ADHD. And like my most successful forms of therapy in the past have been not actually digging which is the opposite of what i just said but like the exact opposite welcome to my life um is just like um adhd coaching is like my biggest need of like what are finding motivation for the things that are like not exciting and not comedy related and like you know what i mean so like that's those are the two those are that's what i always want is like right now i'm like well i don't want someone to it's the exact opposite. I've said both in the same week. I don't want anyone to dig. I just want somebody to like help me get my goal list done and also dig and ask me weird questions about my past. You paint. Did you say you paint in like a throwaway thing? Like, not paint. I don't you, think so. You didn't? Okay, thank God. Because I was like, you do that too? No, I but used to have hobbies. Oh. I used to have a lot, I used to have a lot of hobbies. And they are, they're, 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 they're buried. <laughs> they're so buried. Now you just have a baby. I'm like, I have two extra hours to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> just like a real mom. Oh, yeah. So no hobbies, just comedy and writing. So the way that the way that spiritual psychology works, yeah. and it works lots of different ways, but is um, certainly it can be issue focused. But a lot of times what wants to happen is just already right here. So um a really good place to well why don't we're gonna we're gonna poke at you yeah, a little bit it. first and then we'll poke at you if we, I, I would say for like i think one of the things that i definitely notice difficulty in my day-to-day life is like relationship stuff like conflict resolution de-escalation stuff like that and like that's i guess areas that i i certainly see myself wanting to work at so say more about that how does how does it come up um, I, I definitely would say that both my partner and I now are more combative and defensive when it comes to like a conflict or, or we get into an argument and we'll have, I'll notice for myself, have trouble like really hearing what she's saying mm-hmm. instead of just kind of like focusing on how I'm going to respond to it. Right. You know, that's definitely, I think probably a, a a key a key factor of like a lot of males in oh in like or maybe everybody everybody like, does that yeah yeah <laughs> so so um so if you consider a conflict that you guys have had recently 
and um, like pull one up and see if you can so this is really body scented work so see if you can get a sense of like what's happening in your body when you're having a conflict this is your girlfriend mm -hmm. yeah so when you're having a conflict with your girlfriend like what what's happening in your body before you get to the defensive place or maybe you get there do you go right to defense Think of a conflict lately. Yeah. yeah can you yeah. pick one and even just, is it one you can kind of tell us what it is? Just super simple. Like she wanted to go to McDonald's and I want to go to Burger King. Or <laughs> no. Well, yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk about the most like recent relevant one. And it's actually, it was transpiring kind of throughout this festival. Um, but she got like, she got really fucked up at a party and like wound up naked in a hot tub, making out with a bunch of people. And she kind of said it was under the context of like oh we were playing spin the bottle it was like really fun and like not a big deal you shouldn't really worry about it and then i was like well i kind of am a little bit worried about it um so that's been an ongoing conflict well yeah that's not mcdonald's and burger King. that's not mcdonald's and burger King. right no so that's intense but i think that our our back and forth since then has been more of like her trying to explain it as like pretty not like it not a big deal not like an issue that i should be worried about where i'm kind of coming from my point of view being like hey i'm out of state like i don't know what was going on and it is kind of a big deal for me right um but we're not really hearing each other um or i guess we're speaking past each other in this in this context okay so if so if you think about um let's kind of go to the well, you can pick any of the conversations that you guys have had around this. And um, so pick one. It could be the first one. It could be subsequent ones. And so if you, if you like, consider your body, like, what is happening? We can maybe just bring it up this way right now. So if you think about what happened with her in the hot tub and you're not there, um, how does that feel in your body? Kind of like... Like not not well and unease, like in your gut, kind of like confusion and sadness inside, like lower stomach. Okay, so if um, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes for a minute and see if you can bring your awareness a little bit deeper to that, we're gonna be curious about it, about what that feeling is, because the thing is, we have lots of narratives in our head, we have all kinds of stories, but our body doesn't lie. And I personally believe that any discomfort that we have is an opportunity for us to do some healing work within ourselves and become more whole and more grounded. So, so if you bring your awareness to that really understandable discomfort and sadness and confusion in your belly, just see if you can notice, like, does it have a shape? Does it have, if, if it was, if we were going to give it kind of open your other senses of sight and sound and taste and touch and smell and instinct and intuition if we were going to kind of give it a form what color would it be what shape would it be what's its density those feelings of confusion and sadness i guess like when i was closing my eyes and just kind of thinking about that listening it's like just kind of a heavy dark blue orb okay so I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes shut as much as you can for this. And um, and so if you bring your awareness to that, um, to that kind of heavy blue orb, and I wonder 
if you can sense or feel or imagine the first time in your life you ever had a feeling similar to that. And it, it doesn't have to be like a memory. It's just kind of what comes up when I offer that possibility. When was the first time you felt that kind of sadness and confusion in your belly? Uh, I, could, I think back to like a moment, which I, I like smile about now or laugh about now, um, which was when my folks were still together and they're having a, like a really big fight. Uh-huh. And it was like on Easter we had these uh like uh laminate like easter placemats like kids placemats mm-hmm. and my dad ended up like ripping them apart for some reason uh and i think looking back then i was like really like afraid and sad and confused but i mean it's funny looking back now because it's so absurd but that that would be a another heavy blue orb feeling okay so if you how old how old were you when that happened it's probably like five or six okay so if you see if you can do you want to drop the mic on her yeah i did okay um if you see if you can sense or feel or imagine that little boy at that age and this is happening and he's having these really bad feelings and i wonder if you could imagine yourself as you are today so all the experience you've had, all the work you've done in your life, you've done a lot of work, and stepping into the scene as the adult self you are today with that little boy and make yourself known to him. And notice how you feel about that little boy who's feeling sad and confused and his parents are having a big fight. And how do you feel about him, that little boy? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how, how I would feel. I mean, I would just want to be there to, you know, support him and comfort him, make, make sure he knows that it's going to turn out okay. What does he need? Probably just a hug or some human contact. So in spiritual psychology, all time is present time. So even though... This is something that happened a long time ago. On a on the level of the psyche, it's something that still exists today, as if it was right now. So if you give that little boy a hug, what happens? Uh, he probably feels better. Mm-hmm. What has your relationship been like? with that little boy in your life? How have you treated him? Mm. He's a really sensitive boy. Mm. Yeah. He's really sensitive. For sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In that situation that you've laughed out over the years it was really really scary for him things were coming apart in his family and he knew it on some level so you know what we want to tell him we want to tell him that happened a long time ago and he doesn't have to live in that anymore things are really different now and you 
actually can be his healthy parent now. And we want to bring him out of that situation in that kitchen with dad raging and all. That was terrible for him. And he doesn't have to live there anymore. Would he like to leave that place and come with you? Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we bring him to a beautiful and peaceful and powerful place in nature? Maybe one of the favorite places you've ever been. Some place where you felt really connected. And where would you bring him? He doesn't have to live in that anymore. We're going to get him out of there. Uh, <clears throat> I'd say just the coastline of Maine, just mm. kind of being home. Mm-hmm. I can smell it. Mm-hmm. Those rough rocks. Is it day or night? Daytime. Mm. What's the quality of the air? Uh, it's nice, it's, you know, end of summer turning into fall, mm. so it's kind of crisp. Mm-hmm. Mm. And how does he feel to be there? Safe. And the sky, and the ocean, and the earth is there. So we want to let him know that this is a really safe place, that nobody can come here without his permission. This is a sacred place for him. This place has only his highest good in mind. And we're here to help him. There's a lot that's good about this little boy. What's good about this boy? What are his gifts and talents? He's got a <coughs> weird sense of humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like he already knows he would like to build stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in this place with these really powerful elements, what does he feel the most comfortable with? The water, the sky, the earth, the rocks? Yeah, the, the water, the water and the rocks. Yeah. So I wonder if he becomes aware of the water and the rocks he can open to the possibility that the rocks and the water are also aware of him, that they're available for him as a source and a resource of strength and wisdom, that the elements of water and stone are actually elements that are in his own body. They're like his relatives. How is it for him to open to that possibility? Being supported by the earth. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to do with the water or the stone? I uh, just jump in, you know, just get in the water. Tell him to jump in. And really notice how it feels. How is it to jump in the water? Be surrounded by it. Nice. It's cold. Definitely cold, but uh-huh. it's nice. And so, 
How does that little boy, how does he feel about you, your adult self? Feels comfortable, feels happy to have that friend. Mm. And what does he need from you? What does he need from you? Needs me to be there. Just to know that he's there. Mm-hmm. And are you willing to be there for him? Yeah. Mm. And how is it for him to hear that? That you're willing to be there for him? It's good. It's good. Mm. Is there anything that you would need to do or change? in your life today to make room for him to be loved and cared for in the way that he really needs I don't really I don't really know I don't really know ask him he was going to come and be with you in your life today is there anything that you need to do or change there might not be just to be open and open and accepting to that I guess Mm -hmm. to pay attention to him yeah And so, is he interested in coming and being with you in your life today? Or would he like to stay in this place in me? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'll just say this. He will always, and so will you, you will always have access to this spiritual place. Now that you have made this connection, you will always have access to it. So... Coming into present time fully doesn't mean that you don't have access. You will always have access to the power of this place. But it's up to him. Uh, yeah. He can stay if he wants, or he can come and be with you. No, he, he, he can come and be with me. Okay. Think, yeah. So, I wonder if you can... Well, first I want to ask, is there anything else he wants to do in this place before he comes to be with you? Just to breathe in the, the salty air, and that's it, really. Okay, so take a deep breath of that salty air, and, and I wonder if you can sense or feel or imagine hugging him into your body, like butter melting into toast, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, energetically, Bringing this part of your own soul home to where he really needs to be, where he can be safe and loved and cared for by you in the way he's always needed. You might feel a filling sensation as he integrates into your body all the way down to the soles of your feet and the tips of your fingers and the crown of your head. And knowing that this connection with this really beautiful part of yourself, this really pure boy, that it will inform and transform all areas of your life, whether you're aware of it or not, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, creatively, socially, relationally, that when we 
This is called soul retrieval. And when we add to our own life energy, it informs all areas of our life. And that you're going to be able to easily and naturally relate with this part of yourself in a healthy way and care for him, which means caring for yourself in a way you've probably never done before. And you're ready to do this, to care for this part of yourself in this way and to open up to his vulnerability and his truth and, and also to receive the life energy that he holds, even more of his own quirky sense of humor and his engagement with the world and his curiosity and his sensitivity and his perception. He feels very perceptive to me. That those will add to your life his innocence and his openness and his connection with the earth and the ocean and that through him you'll have even more of yourself so if you take a minute right now and see if you can sense or feel or imagine that little boy in the studio with us right now. Where is he? Uh, by, my, by my side, I guess. By my side. How's he feeling? Better. Definitely better. Safer. Happier. And how is it for you to have him here in this way? Uh, feels nicer to have him here instead of back in, you know, memories, bad memories. Mm-hmm. So again, it's not like those things didn't happen, but he doesn't have to live there. We can have him in present time where he can be cared for right now. And so if you think about the dynamic that's been happening in your partnership, this really painful dynamic that's been happening, and consider that your responsibility is to care for him and how... And when things, when there's an exchange between you and, and her, if you can focus on him and caring for him and how that might change how those dynamics go going forward, not even with her, but within yourself, that that's your job mm -hmm. is to care for yourself. And to be honest about what he needs with yourself first and then to decide how to advocate for him. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. How is it for him to hear that? Uh, it's good. It's, uh, I mean, I like that. I definitely like that, that, that perspective, that point of view, that idea of taking care of that, of that person. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, how do you feel in your body right now? Just bringing your awareness to him and right in present time. Um, warmer, warmer inside, better than before. Excellent. So, ask that little boy if there's anything that he needs or if there's anything he wants to do or communicate right now. I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. I don't think he does. I think he just needs to be recognized to be, you know, sought to be seen after. 
Does he know you're a comedian? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, he does now. <laughs> <laughs> See if you can show him. Show him your life today. Show him where you live and what you do and people you hang out with and you know you're in San Francisco right now you've been on a bunch of radio shows and you've done a bunch of comedy and you build stuff for a living and how does he feel about all that proud yeah proud I guess proud yeah you should be proud You're following your dreams and you're using your talents in the world. It's really good. It's really good. So just know that you're going to be able to easily and naturally connect with this part of yourself going forward and you'll also be able to connect with that energy of the ocean and it exists in the Pacific Coast too um, and that these are sources and resources for you of strength and wisdom and guidance and and grounding um, in what's true because the truth really does set us free and the more that we can own what's true about ourselves the more power we have in the world as a force of good. So, really great work. Really great work. That, um, part of the reason that I want to do this work on the radio is because in the 80s, I tell this story a lot, there was a man named John Bradshaw, and um, and I was watching TV one day, and I um, I saw him do a process not dissimilar from the one we just did, and I was blown away. Um, and it often happens with five-year-olds, the five-year-old part of ourselves. There's, there's something, there's a split that happens at five where we move from being an infant into the world and we often lose like what I call our authentic self. Um, and I don't know why it's set up that way. I'm going to talk to the management when I die. Like I think it's a design flaw. And fucking, but anyway. Um, but, um, you know, I watched that happen and um, I... Um, I had just stopped taking drugs and uh, drinking. Was trying to get my life out of the toilet, and uh, took a little while to do that. But um, and and I had all this like underlying emotional stuff that I was completely separated from. And um, and when I saw that happen, I realized that there was a possibility for healing that I didn't know was possible. And um, and I ended up spontaneously. I had an experience where I spontaneously like connected with a five-year-old part of myself mm. and um, it was many years later I was cleaning house for a woman who was a therapist and she ended up becoming the teacher for this work that I do now mm -hmm. and um, and so thank you so much thank you for sharing because yeah. I believe that when we see or hear what's possible for other people um, 
then we know that it's possible for us as well to yeah. become more whole. I always want to clap at the end when you do that because it's like <laughs> a fucking circus magic trick. It's like, what would I do? I met the kid too. That was really cool. She did, she did it too. I did. Was she changed my show. life. I met the kid mm-hmm. hanging out with the kid. It's like, it's, I almost do, 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 do. Look, it works. It's crazy. No, it's so, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Um, magic. Yeah. No, it is magic. It is. It's magic with a K. It's, it's alchemy. It's alchemy of, of connecting. How do you feel? You all right? I mean, it's, you're really <laughs> vulnerable. It's really vulnerable. I don't normally cry in front of strangers, but uh, <laughs> it's um, it's okay. It's Mutiny Radio. We're yeah, all family here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, I mean, what it is, it's an op- for me. The way I see it is that it's an opening. It's like it's it's an it's like almost like osmosis where a part of ourself, like the membrane, has to become thin so that we can receive and expel. And so, you know, for me. Um, as someone who hated crying because I hated being vulnerable but it kept me frozen away from parts of myself to like really open up it's then when I open up like then I can receive mm-hmm. you know so um, that was really beautiful no it really was it was really beautiful um, so there's a there's a little piece of work we can do in the last 10 minutes um that that i find really helpful and um and i think um i think Ula, that i don't know if you can focus you can though see you are you have, you have such mom energy i know you can multitask yeah. <laughs> okay. so and pm you can do this too and anybody who's listening so this is one of my favorite meditations um it's a really simple meditation and it's about connecting um I'm all about authentic sources of power because I think we have a lot of inauthentic sources of power that we use in the world through whether it's putting other people down or trying to steal your energy or taking drugs or trying to get too much money or like this. But when we, when we have authentic power, um, different stuff happens. Better stuff happens. You run into people in the dog park and they make <laughs> and they make appointments with you. Serendipity happens. Anyway, so. Um, so this is a guided meditation. So we're going to do more. And, um, and I would bring the boy with you on this. Okay. So, um, so you're going to visit a friend. You're going to go visit um, a very old friend. And it's someone that you love and care for very much. In fact, they're very, very old. And they're probably at the end of their life. But you're not sad about that. You're really looking forward to seeing them. And so I wonder... If you can imagine where their home is, um, it may be in the woods, it may be in a neighborhood, it may be in the city. Where is their home? And this is a beloved place, it's a beautiful place. You love to go there. You've been there many, many times and it's very warm and inviting. And kind of notice if it's day or night and what is the approach to their home like as you begin to move toward it? And just kind of noticing if you smell anything, do you hear anything, like really what, really being present with what's around you. And you approach their front door, and the door's unlocked because they've been waiting for you. And 
might notice if the door has a color and what the door handle's like. And you open the door and you want to call to them. I'm here and you can hear them. I've been waiting for you. And as you move into the home, noticing, notice how it's decorated. Notice what colors, notice what the furniture's like, any decorations, what's the quality of the light in the home. And see if you can notice where they are. They may be in the back room, they may be outside, they may be waiting for you. And so you approach the place where they are, and uh, and they're so glad you've come. And if they're able, they might even stand, if they still have enough health to do that, and greet you. And as you move to embrace them, you realize that this is actually yourself is a very old person at the end of your own optimal existence. You've lived your best life. And this old and wise part of yourself is so glad you've come. And they want to share their wisdom and their experience with you now. And see if you can notice how they feel about you. And how you feel about them to see your optimal self at the end of your life. And how do they feel about their life? How do they feel about themselves? And is there anything that they want to do or communicate with you right now. Any words of wisdom, suggestion, advice from their great experience? They know everything about you. And to see we just want to ask them if they're willing to be available as a source and a resource going forward. That again, in many, many traditions, it's understood that all time is present time. That the past and the future are constructs. And that everything is available to us actually right now. When you're ready, you might say goodbye to them, knowing that, again, they're always available to you, and move back out through the home, back out the front door, and back out into the world, bringing this connection with you. back into your body fully in present time and you might take a moment and see if you can 
sense or feel or imagine calling that wise part of yourself, your own highest self, into the room right now. And where would they be in relation to you? They'd be beside you, in front of you, behind you, within you. And see how it feels to have them here. Have access to our own deepest wisdom, our own timeless nature. Like a teacher or a guide that has only our highest good in mind. And just know that this is always available to you, whether you're alone or with others, whether you're busy or at rest, that you can just bring your awareness into your body in this way and make this connection. And you're actually adding to your own resources in a really healthy and helpful way. So just bringing this back with you. And remember everything fully and open your eyes when you feel ready. Magic! <laughs> so what happened, Pam? I don't know why I live in San Jose, but that's weird. Okay. Did you live in San Jose? I lived in San Jose on a weird dog. I don't, I don't know why. It was my grandma's house when I was growing up. Mm. And then I was like, I'm like, why am I living in San Jose? But no, good stuff, smart person. I'm never going to have to take Xanax again. Ha <laughs> ha! I'm cured. What did so? What did she say to you? Uh, just to calm the fuck down. Everything's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> chill out. It's you're fine. Yeah. How cool. how is it to hear that you're fine? Well, from myself, that's unusual. So. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I think you're fine, Pam. Thanks. That's pretty magical. I love Pam. Pam, I just yeah, love, I love you. I really you, love you. I tell you, you helped me so much. I love the same thing he, you did with him. She does a second part. Oh man, when Pickle Dick turned into the Jigglypuff <laughs> in the sky on the town, <laughs> like it was life changing. Yeah, she took the negative voice out of me. It's been gone. It's gone for months. It's gone, for huh? months. It's fucking gone. Yeah. Months ago, she took the negative voice out of my head, and it was magic. We can do that. I didn't take it out. You did. No. Oh, well, thank you. You, you led did. me. I to just created the negative voice out of my head, and then and then Pickle Dick went away. Pickle Dick went away. <laughs> he, did. he did. Were you able to connect with a part of yourself? Um, I mean, sort of. I was kind of wrapped up in my own head a little oh, bit, that's but. Strange. A little distracted, yeah, but there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, I definitely thought more about like my home growing up in Maine and mm. stuff like that. Good. All right. It's uh. All right. So we gotta end. God, it's okay. With a Colin. joke. Yeah. Do you guys? Do you guys like? Can you give like a two minute? Can you each give like a minute and a half bit before we go? <laughs> Switch right to like raunchy comedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you don't have to switch to raunchy comedy. So you were just holding space for us here. So how was that for you? And you got the baby. You're doing good. I feel like, I feel like, like you said, the babies are zen. I don't know if my mic is on anymore, but I feel yeah, like, 
um, babies ours then and like following them. Um, I'm dating someone now and he was holding the baby and we were at the botanical gardens and he said, let's just walk where the baby looks. And yeah. I just feel like somebody being that present with that spirit and then me tuning into that is like, it means I can't focus on other things, but it's also like, I was trying to do the meditation and like, <laughs> was like, wait, why, what am I doing? Like this baby's talking to me. And <laughs> right. You gotta be with the baby. Yeah. But it was interesting because I was very self-critical of like my choices with the meditation. <laughs> I was sort of like, I was like, oh, my best friend. And then I'm like, wait, why don't I just choose my mom? I can visualize my house easier. And then I'm like, wait, shit, I'm living in my childhood home. Oh, no, I want to move out of it. No! We'll you'll have to come back for another session. Yeah. For sure. I'm, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. How you doing? Good. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank Gotta you so much. Coffee. Thank really, you. Really, go drink coffee. It was really great to have you. So, um... So I offer free therapy for people who are willing to have the sessions put on the podcast, on the radio. Sometimes I pre-record them. Uh, I work a lot on the phone. So if you're interested in being on spiritual psychology and experiencing some of this great work, you can give me a call at 415-672-4992. You can shoot me a text. Or you can send me an email at info at com. That's R-E-N-E-E-M-C-K-E-N-N-A. Spiritual psychology, another great week. Everyone's all better and healed. Yeah. Yay. And thanks, Mommy Pam, for making it all possible at Mutiny Radio here. We Yay. Love <laughs> Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? There's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke workshop yep every monday 6 to 8 p.m on the mutant radius so you're saying i could tell my jokes every monday from 6 to 8 that's what i'm saying it's the joke workshop mondays 6 to 8 p.m at the mutant radius Yahoo! <laughs>
Welcome to the Labor Day Show on Labor and Love Radio. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on?
for a green day right now. Play it later on. Here we go. This is uh, Black Eyed Peas.
push it, move your body and push it, get knocked and push it, we gon' pot it and push it, we gon' pot it and push it, move your body and push it, get knocked and push it. Scope the whole place for girls with cute faces. Cause I see some fly mama, so pack your pajamas, but don't bring the drama. But you could bring your melody. I'll plug in my mic and sing my harmony. For how many times we gonna hit it? How many times we gonna split it? How many times you gonna get it? Or else you are gonna wanna come sober, you're gonna have to order. Cause I'm the alligator champ, driving a train, driving a train. Or you could call your friend and I'll switch my lane. And get buddy buddy with your friend Mary Jane. She really blows my brain. She really blows my brain. Good morning, mutineers. <clears throat> this is the Labor and Love Show coming to you from Mutiny Radio. And this is our special Labor Day show. As Black Eyed Peas just told us, it's a holiday. Celebrate. It's a holiday. Black-eyed peas. Okay, so we've got a show planned, good show planned for you today. We're going to play parts of Fred Glass's history of the California labor movement, Golden Lands, Working Hands. What happened today in labor history? 1991, 3,005 Hundred buses rolled into Washington, D.C. To do what? We've got guest commentators, Francesca, Francesca Ramsey, and Francesca Fiorentini, talking about can we survive capitalism? Why is voter ID, why are voter ID ID laws inherently racist? What have unions done for us anyway? Huh? Do we know? Uh, We're going to find out today. We've also got a section by Jack London, where Jack London from a novel describes a work day. <clears throat> a work week, a work month. Washing and pressing uh, white shirts at the Bohemian Grove. And we've got our labor beat. Twenty thousand workers are on strike at AT and T. 
an Iranian journalist and labor activist, subject to 10 years, sentenced to 10 years, and 148 lashes. Problem with Congress, pretty obvious. Commentary from Barbara Ehrenreich regarding low-page workers. What trickle down? Huh? Worker pays up 12%. How much does CEO pay up? <clears throat> and a woman that we all revere and love, Dolores Huerta, still at it, getting arrested. NLRB rules in favor of fired workers. What? What's going on? <laughs> Talk a little about Jay-Z. Anyway, let, let's... First, we started out with, uh, like I said, Black Eyed Peas. Labor Day, it's a holiday, and I want to look up those lyrics, see what they have to say about it. Before that, we had the classic labor song by Pete Seeger. Which Side Are You On? Written by the redoubtable Florence Reese. As her living room was being, her house was being torn apart by company scabs, company security people looking for her husband. Florence Reese. And the one before that was by Cher Bono. Yes, that Cher. Talking about Working girl, working girl, working in a man's world. Something else I want to talk about today is something that we don't often talk about. Um, a lot of political and uh, economic commentary now is based solely on value, on money on is it good or not good for workers monetarily. We're going to take a look about at alienation. This is uh, a concept that uh, Karl Marx wrote about. But what is, how, how does living under capitalism alienate us one from the other? One commentator says it makes us all into homeless people. Makes us all feel like we're homeless. Okay. We got labor cards. We've got uh, start out with a little labor history. <clears throat> August thirty first. Why we march. On this day in labor history, the year was 1991. 3,500 buses rolled into Washington, D.C. They were loaded with protesters there to participate in Solidarity Day. The AFL-CIO organized the event to coincide with the Labor Day weekend. They issued a statement, Why We March, outlining labor's demands. The purpose of the day was to bring attention to the concerns of the nation's working people, especially over health care. Other reasons for the march included a call for more public works programs. Another major demand was the end to permanent replacement of striking workers by scabs. 
Bernie Dinkin, Secretary Treasurer of the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union in Philadelphia, explained, one of the main purposes for us going down is to let our friends know, our friends in the Democratic Party who are sitting on their laurels, that if they do not support anti-scab legislation, we will vote against them, no matter what they've done in the past. The most important aim of the event was to show worker strength and solidarity. A similar showing of solidarity had taken place in the nation's capital 10 years before. After President Reagan fired striking air traffic controllers, a September 1981 rally had drawn more than a quarter of a million people. The 1991 action brought out similar numbers. Despite the 95-degree weather, tens of thousands converged on the nation's capital. They came from across the nation and 30 countries. 100 buses and a specially chartered train made the trip from Philadelphia. Noticeable among the crowd were members of the United Steelworkers Union with their gold and blue shirts. 180 different labor, religious, and civil rights groups stood up on that day for the rights of working people. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1996. That was the day the workers at the Lusty Lady Strip Club in San Francisco made their final push to make their case for the right to join a union. They made history by winning the union vote 57 to 15. SEIU Local 790 led the historic campaign. What started the union drive was the windows at the private booths where the ladies performed. The windows had one-way glass. That meant patrons could look in, but performers could not see out. They worried that the men could videotape them or take photographs without their permission. When management refused to change the windows, the women started talking union. Soon, other workplace issues arose as the women furthered their union discussion. One woman recalled, We started to discuss other problems at work, like being forced to come in when you were sick. She went on, Our first thought was to organize a petition, but we were really concerned about individual dancers being scapegoated and fired because that happened on a regular basis. Another participant in the union drew on her personal background as a reason for getting involved. She noted, I had been raised to support union efforts and the workers' cause. I hadn't ever worked at a place where there was any sort of struggle to be a part of. The women ran a successful campaign to unionize. Despite winning the vote, management dragged its feet in negotiating their first contract. The women went on strike and management locked them out. Few men dared to cross the picket line to enter the club. And within a few days, management capitulated and returned to the bargaining table where the women signed their first contract. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day that one of the most pitched battles in U.S. labor history, the Battle of Blair Mountain, began in West Virginia. Coal fueled the engines of industry, keeping the trains moving and the steel mills humming. Labor organizing in the coal fields faced violent repression. The conflict turned bloody at Matawan. 
friend of labor, local lawman Sid Hadfield, had won a gun battle against armed members of the notorious Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Then, other Baldwin Feltz agents, brought to West Virginia by the mine owners, gunned down Hatfield in cold blood. The miners' anger boiled over. 600 miners gathered under the United Mine Workers of America District 17 banner. The armed miners were determined to march into the state's southern coal fields. Their aim was to promote the union effort and sweep away the gunmen hired by the mining companies. As they marched, more and more miners joined them. As many as 10,000 miners converged on Blair Mountain. The high ground stood between the unionized northern part of the state and the less organized southern mines. At Blair Mountain, they met Logan County Sheriff Don Chafin, who had amassed an army of 3,000 armed men to repel the miners. Chafin's men had dug trenches, blocked roads, and marshaled machine guns to stop the Union men. In the battle that ensued, one million rounds were fired. The mine owners hired private planes to drop shrapnel bombs on the miners. The United States Army finally arrived. The miners, many of them World War I veterans, surrendered. Although the owners had won, what occurred at Blair Mountain drew national attention to the unsafe working conditions and the brutality of the coal barons in the coal fields. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Labor History there in two minutes, and it seems like uh, the end of August is a, as the rest of the whole calendar is uh, labor history time. Uh, we had a varied uh, calendar there of uh, labor history exhibits from strippers at the Lusty Lady to pitched battles at Blair Mountain to the 1991 demo that moved a quarter of a million people to Washington, D.C. Black-eyed peas, I wanted to... Peas. I wanted to um, check out the band, Black Eyed Peas, and talk a little about them, maybe look at the lyrics. Okay, Black Eyed Peas, an American musical group, which we already know. Um, originally an alternative hip-hop group, they sub subsequently... Changed their music sound to pop and dance pop music. Although the group was founded in L.A. in 1995, it was not until the release of their third album, Elefunk, in 2003, that they achieved high record sales. Since that time, the group has sold an estimated 75 million records, making them one of the world's best-selling groups all time. Black eyed peas. And let's see if we can get a look at lyrics. The Battle of Blair Mountain, one million rounds of ammunition. shot in that battle. The 
closest thing in the 20th century that uh, arm pitched battle. Now those those miners were outgunned by the uh, federal government. The government had brought in troops. They were, they were um, advised by Mother Jones not to fight against the federal troops. And like the report said, it, it did bring a, um, attention to the plight of miners. And out of that, in 1931, came Florence Reese and Which Side Are You On? Constant struggle in the coal mines. Even to this day... Um, as coal miners whose jobs are disappearing as we give up on coal, concerned with their futures, what's going to happen to them? What happens to a 55-year-old coal miner whose job is over? I mean, how's he going to get a job? Where's he going to get a job? And that's all he's known all his life. Mr. Trump made a big show about saving coal but it's just not in the cards. It's dirty. It pollutes. It kills those who mine it. And even though miners, you know, try to cling to that as something they can depend on, it's because they're not sure of what's coming next. Black-eyed peas, Labor Day. When I step in the room, I bring the heat like the month of June. Crank the vibe, you make the bass go boom. While out some wild baboon, we go bananas to the tune. I'm partying in Hollywood, VIP, don't understand this TOD. Party forever, we get down together. We don't stop and we don't quit. Let's get it going, because you know we're going to celebrate. Holiday. I don't work today or the next three days, so let's celebrate. It's a holiday. I don't work today. Party till the morning and wake up late. We do it through the daybreak. Dance to my rhyme. We don't stop. Okay, Black Eyed Peas celebrating Labor Day with their song, It's a Holiday. What, by the way, besides, besides Labor Day, the Labor Day holiday, what have unions done for us? Thank a unions. Let's figure it out. Weekends, paid vacation, FMLA, family medical leave, paid sick leave, child labor laws, social security, minimum wage, eight hour day, overtime pay, Health and Safety, OSHA, Healthcare, Dental, Vision, 
collective bargaining breaks, wrongful termination laws, age discrimination laws, raises, sexual harassment laws, American Disabilities Act, holiday pay, military leave, equal pay act, civil rights, workers comp, bank a union. Now there are always those people we saw last week how uh, organizing efforts in uh, Dayton, Ohio, movie that we're going to talk about a little later called American Factory. Here are the union. Here are the workers. Workers united against workers uniting. Ten reasons we're against unions. I prefer having no power. I love bosses. Unions just want to line their own pockets. Unlike bosses who have only our interests at heart. Well, uh, other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, uh, pension plans, higher wages and sick leave, what good have unions ever done for us? There's a woman saying, I deserve less pay than men. And here's a guy with a hook instead of a hand. I wouldn't want the company wasting money making my job safer. Speaking objectively, all unions are evil. I want the right to work, along with the right to be arbitrarily fired. Okay? Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only businesses should get to do that. One day, I'll get rich and I'll be the boss. Once that happens, I don't want some union getting in my way. I'm also going to be boss. Who wants more power at work? These are your voices, your anti-union voices, and that's what they amount to. What have unions done for us? All those things. So let's talk a little bit about the Amazon jungle. And again, this is, uh, we're going to get into this with, uh, with uh, Francesca Fiorentini. Can we afford, can we survive unions? Yes. Can we survive capitalism? <laughs> Maybe not. Here we go, Francesca Fiorentini. Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode, we're looking at the failures of profit-driven climate change solutions and why the cooking of our planet is becoming a recipe for socialism. (laughs) 
Once again, we've broken global temperature records with July being the hottest month recorded since the invention of recording temperatures, which if you're a right winger, sounds like very biased framing. The libs never want to talk about the Hadean age when the earth was molten lava. Typical. It's so hot that Greenland is losing ice that wasn't supposed to melt until 2070. The Arctic is on fire, and I'm pretending I belong at random pool parties. Oh, who, who am I friends with? Oh, Derek. Or Michael. Matt. You're telling me there's no Matt here? So now seems like as good a time as every other moment prior till now to talk about climate change. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius since the time we started burning all these fossil fuels. And we're on track to warm by four degrees, possibly as soon as 2060. According to the most recent UN study, even two degrees of warming would mean millions more refugees, double the loss of food harvest, 10 centimeters of sea level rise, and an obliteration of all coral reefs. Which means we've got 12 years to have a shot at keeping the temperature to a still bad but manageably terrifying one and a half degrees celsius of warming so yeah banning plastic straws ain't gonna cut it even though it's fun to watch so-called liberal paper straws trigger our president into doing this his campaign started selling Trump-themed uh, plastic straws, so you could buy a pack of 10 for $15. $15 for 10 straws? That's $1.50 per straw. If that's how much Trump thinks straws cost, how much is his dealer charging him for Adderall? Yeah, that'll be uh, $700,000. Part of the reason we're at such a breaking point is thanks to years of shallow solutions. Solutions often devised by the same corporate interests that got us into this mess in the first place. One of those solutions is carbon cap and trade, which tries to get polluters to pollute less by limiting the amount of carbon any corporation can emit, but also by allowing them to purchase carbon limits from other companies who haven't used theirs up. Cap and trade has already been implemented in countries around the world and in a number of US states, but many say that it doesn't actually stop emissions. It just spreads them around and creates a speculative market for carbon. Like, imagine if you could buy and sell Weight Watchers points to keep eating pizza. Someone would be making money, but no one's losing weight. Plus, we'd see the rise of a frightening thin people mafia who control the whole racket. Just listen to one researcher who says cap and trade pushes us in the opposite direction of where we need to be going. We need to overcome our addiction to fossil fuels and the problem with cap and trade is, it, is that it stands in the way of doing that in, in many ways. It's, it's, it's a way of providing pollution rights to some of the worst polluters so that they can delay the kind of structural change that's necessary. He's right. That's not how you fight an addiction. If you want to get your brother off heroin, you don't split up his stash between your mom and dad. Like, let's all just do a little bit of heroin to keep Brad from doing a lot of bit of heroin. At this point, cap and trade isn't even a relevant solution anymore because it's too slow to be viable. California, the second largest carbon polluter in the nation, but first in my heart, reduced its emissions by almost 9% in three years, which is not bad. But do the math. It's not nearly enough if we've got only 12 years to get to zero. Silicon Valley is still going to be underwater, and then we'll have to deal with a whole bunch of flotation device startups, and that just seems exhausting. So cap and trade won't get us there. What about innovation? We'll just ask the science nerds to come up with something. I mean, other than the ones telling us to stop burning fossil fuels. Innovation has been the aim of private companies also looking to get rich off the climate crisis. Floating ideas like geoengineering, which includes one plan to spray reflective aerosols into the stratosphere to block the sun. Yeah, 
aerosol. If only our climate change denying president knew that this whole time the answer has been hairspray. Turns out, though, that that scheme, like many others, has too many unforeseen side effects to be feasible. Things like stopping rain and totally vindicating chemtrail conspiracists. Even if wacky inventions or cap-and-trade worked, they're still too slow. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $649 billion a year. So not only are they making the planet uninhabitable, they're getting a goddamn discount. These faux solutions have come and gone, all while climate change has been getting worse. Which means now, we need to do far more in way less time. The longer we wait, the more that the response challenges our economic system, because we need to cut so much and so deeply. What does she mean that the response will challenge our economic system? Well, that's because our economic system is currently based on using up all of Earth's natural resources with no regard for the actual Earth all to turn a profit and create economic growth, or GDP. You remember GDP from our video on the economy, which you should totally watch. And while you're at it, subscribe. GDP is that phantom number that many agree is useless, but is actually incredibly harmful when it comes to climate change. Since when was GDP a sensible measure of human welfare? And yet everything that governments want to do is to try to boost GDP. Now, people like the OECD or the World Bank who say, oh, we're not asking for a lot of growth, just 3% a year. That means doubling in 24 years. Yeah, we're bursting through all the environmental boundaries and screwing the planet already. You want to double it? We have to overthrow this system, which is eating the planet with perpetual growth. I love how blown this host's mind is. Rarely do you see the precise moment that someone gets woke. You mean it's not about plastic straws? Slowing down economic growth has actually been the only thing that has drastically stopped greenhouse gas emissions. The only thing in the last 40 years that has measurably reduced global greenhouse gas emissions is reductions in economic growth. When the Eastern Bloc collapsed in the early 90s, that led to global emissions reductions. He's right. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, greenhouse gas emissions dropped by about 40%. Apparently, people not eating meat because of the high prices had a lot to do with it. It was nothing but veggie borscht for them. And to think now it's way less painful to avoid eating meat with things like the Impossible Whopper, which I will try as soon as I stop being afraid of it. How does it bleed? The evidence is there that unless we're willing to rethink capitalism, we might have to rethink life itself. Because we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. We've been obsessed with doing more to stop climate change, making even more money, when the answer is actually keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Doing less. Like Disney live-action reboots. Do less. Less extraction of oil, less production, fewer or no yachts for the DeVos family. Renewable energy, solar and wind can replace coal, gas and oil, but we still can't keep endlessly producing and consuming. Even a UN official back in 2015 said as much, and that got the attention of Fox News's Greg Gutfeld, who quoted her on his show. This is probably the most difficult task to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. And predictably, that was met with red baiting. Well, she's wrong. See Mao and the 50 million dead, or Stalin. Hell, look at Venezuela right now. It's a crap show without toilet paper. Yeah. Seriously, they don't have toilet paper in Venezuela. Oh, where we're going, Greg, you won't need toilet paper because the whole world will be one giant bidet. You can wash your face ass wherever you want. Beyond the red baiting, there's an honest question. If we slow down production, will there be jobs? 
Enter the Green New Deal, a plan introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that other guy. The Green New Deal is a blueprint for a 10-year mobilization to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by taking major steps like moving to renewable energy and building public transportation, all with the labor of millions of newly created jobs. This is a call to reorganize and to make sure that we are fighting for a just economy, for a just society, a just environment, and a just future for the United States of America and the world. Mm, sorry, having an ASMR moment. And whenever there's a plan for massive public investment and putting people over profit, it scares the 1% and their mouthpieces a whole lot. They went looking for an issue that would justify a hostile takeover of the economy. Climate change seems scary, so they went with that. Oh my God. Tucker Carlson would rather human civilization die than live in a more equal country. Also, note what's going on just to his right. Yeah, those are updates on an abnormally large hurricane off the Gulf Coast. I love how there's an infiltrator at Fox fighting the machine from the inside, and it's the weather. It will be hard to rein in emissions and capitalism for that matter, but it is possible. We must try with your help with your insistence, with your organizing, with your demands, with your voting, with your mobilizing a broader electorate than we have ever seen before in American history, we do not have to go down that path. It's too late to stop some climate chaos. We're living it. But are we going to die from the things we love, no matter how humiliating? Will we be the David Carradine of civilizations? Or are we going to get real about real solutions? There's time but we can't do it by just pissing around at the margins of the problem. We've got to go straight to the heart of capitalism and overthrow it. In other words, wouldn't we rather be red than dead? Thanks so much for watching Newsbroke. Follow me at Franny Fio and follow AJ Plus and Newsbroke on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all the things. Do you guys think that the U.S. has what it Okay, Francesca Fiorentini there with her analysis of the problems that climate change, that capitalism has caused, actually. Capitalism is based on the endless exploitation of the earth, and the earth is not endless. The resources are not endless. It's not... Uh, it's not immortal. The earth is not immortal in the sense that we're talking about, in the sense that it can support what we call civilization. And there's an apparent contradiction between labor, people who need to go to work every day and support their families, and climate change solutions, where new jobs have to be found, jobs that don't rip off the earth, Jobs that, on the contrary, undo the harmful things that capitalism has done and build a new world based not on greed, but survival. One labor leader who was well aware of that was a man named Chico Mendes. Labor card number one, and we're going to talk a little about Chico Mendes today. Chico Mendes was a tapper, a worker who lived and harvested rubber trees in the Brazilian rainforest. Now, the rainforest is in the news because the 
president of Brazil um, is continuing the process, even expediting the process of burning down the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, to open up land the way the United States uh, government opened up land and one thing they had to do was kill all the natives, which they did, and now that's what's happening in Brazil. Native tribes are being exploited, are being kicked off their land, their ancestral lands, and those lands are being burned down to make cattle ranches, sugarcane plantations. In other words, the so-called Turner Thesis, the U.S. Uh, historian, said that the West was sort of the uh, safety valve for civilization when people couldn't make it in the East, in the big cities of the East. There was this West that was out there. Land was uh, easy to get. You could start your own spread. You could, uh, as long as the West had to be destroyed and replanted, you know, with miles of crops and things. Well, that's happening in Brazil. Chico Mendes became leader of the Tappers Union in 1980. His union fought for workplace rights and the preservation of the rainforest ecology against rich ranching interests. Chico Mendez understood that ecology was part of his work because if the uh, rubber trees were all burned down, he and his, his union people and other tappers would have no work. Mendez's work brought worldwide attention to the destruction of the Amazon jungle the union organized nonviolent actions to resist the takeover of trapper communities and block bulldozers and chainsaw crews. Beautiful children's book called Don't Cut Down That Tree. There's a guy who's being paid to chop down trees in the Amazon. And one day he takes a little nap and all the animals and species that live on that tree and around that tree come and speak to him. Chico Mendez's son, almost of course, Chico Mendez, almost of course, was murdered in 1988. There's a film about Mendez's life and work with Raul Julia entitled The Burning Season, which was released in 1994. We've got a little feature here about Chico Mendez and how important his work was and how important it was that he found a nexus between the labor movement, the blue, and the green, the ecological movement. Chico Mendez, peaceful boy. The 
Amazon rainforest is one of the most important regions in the world, with more species of plants and animals than any other area on the planet. The Amazon basin contains 1.4 billion acres of dense rainforest and has an estimated 390 billion individual trees. This unique ecosystem is important for its rich biodiversity and its abundance of natural resources. However, because of its resources, the Amazon rainforest has been targeted for exploitation for more than 500 years. In recent decades, many commercial entities have set up operations in the Amazon, including cattle ranchers and logging companies. As a result, there has been massive deforestation, which has severely damaged the overall ecosystem and all those who depend on it. One of the groups hurt most by deforestation has been the indigenous people who live there. At one point, the Amazon was home to nearly 6 million tribal people. By the early 1900s, there were fewer than 250,000 natives still living there. Pushed from their homeland and deprived of their resources, thousands of natives found themselves living in poverty with few leaders to represent them or to protect the forest that they relied upon to survive. One man who had the courage to stand up for the indigenous people of the Amazon was Brazilian activist Chico Mendes. Mendes was both a labor leader and an environmentalist. As a labor leader, he worked tirelessly to win basic human rights for the people of the Amazon. And as an environmentalist, he fought to preserve the rainforests of the region. Mendez understood that the Amazon was not just important for the survival of local communities, but also for the health of the entire planet. His activism caught the attention of the world and helped to create a movement to protect the Amazon rainforests and the indigenous people living there. Although his life ended tragically, Mendez accomplished a great deal in a short time, and his legacy continues to inspire people to this day. This is his story. Francisco Chico Mendez was born on December 15, 1944, on a Brazilian rubber plantation outside of the town of Japuri. His family was poor, but very close. When Mendez was eight or nine years old, he started working with his father, tapping rubber trees for their sap, which was later turned into latex. By the time he was 11, he was working full time. As Mendez grew up, he increasingly became aware of how his family and the local community were being exploited. Workers put in long hours for minimal pay, earning barely enough to survive. At the same time, they were being overcharged for goods at company stores, a practice that kept them in constant debt. To make matters worse, many workers developed debilitating lung diseases because the process of making latex produced such dangerous toxic fumes. There were no protections for the workers and no health benefits for those who became sick. Watching so many people struggling, Chico Mendez became increasingly determined to take action. We are unable to remain silent in the face of so much injustice, he said. Mendez began his crusade in a very simple way. He sent letters to the Brazilian government. Mendez sent the letters with great optimism, naively believing that government officials would quickly take action. However, for the most part, his letters were ignored and nothing was done. As a result, Mendez decided to raise the stakes and pursue a more assertive process of collective action. In the early 1970s, Mendez organized the plantation workers into an official labor union. As a unified force, the workers had much more power. They set clear goals and pressured landowners to meet their demands. To demonstrate their power, workers began blocking the roadways into the plantations, refusing to move until action was taken, a form of nonviolent civil disobedience that proved to be very effective. In 1975, Chico Mendez and the workers finally had some success. 
Landowners officially recognized the Rubber Tappers Union and began to make concessions. The union pushed for wage increases, improved conditions, and better protections for the rainforest that was their home. Progress was slow, but steady. However, just as Mendez and his allies began making gains, larger economic forces turned the entire rubber-making industry on its head. As new manufacturing methods advanced, artificial rubber was replacing naturally produced latex. This caused the traditional rubber-tapping industry to completely collapse in just a matter of years. Responding to these sudden changes, plantation owners began selling their land to cattle ranchers, hoping to offset their losses. The ranchers moved in quickly and started cutting down trees to make way for grazing cattle. Deforestation advanced on a scale never seen before. Once again, Mendez and his people found their homes and their way of life threatened by powerful interests. And once again, they moved into action. Organized by Mendez, local communities began setting up blockades to prevent loggers from entering key areas. Other groups took their resistance to a whole new level, sabotaging the equipment used to cut down trees. However, with millions of dollars at stake, cattle ranchers soon retaliated. They hired police to strong-arm Mendez and his followers. Many activists were arrested and taken into custody. Some were even beaten and tortured. Still, in spite of these harsh tactics, Mendez and his supporters succeeded in saving over 3 million hectares from destruction. Progress came at a cost, but the workers were willing to bear it. In 1985, Mendez began pursuing a new strategy. Working with his colleague Maria Allegretti, Mendez spent five months organizing a national meeting of rubber tappers from throughout the Amazon. Together, they launched a new approach, focusing more on the importance of preserving the rainforest and its resources. With this new strategy, they were hoping to win more international support from environmental groups, and the strategy worked. By March of 1987, the Environmental Defense Fund and the National Wildlife Federation flew Mendez to Washington, D.C. to convince the Inter-American Development Bank and the U.S. Congress to support the creation and protection of extractive reserves. With growing support, Mendez continued to improve working and living conditions for his people while increasing protection for the rainforests. As Mendez made important gains, however, he realized he was also making dangerous enemies along the way. In 1988, he predicted that he would not live to see the end of the year, and sadly, his prediction came true. That year, Mendez became involved in a dispute with a local rancher named Darley Alves da Silva, who bought a rubber plantation to log for wood. As the situation heated up, events spiraled out of control. On December 22, 1988, just one week after his 44th birthday, Mendez was gunned down by da Silva's son. Incredibly, Mendez was the 19th activist to be killed in Brazil that year. Although some of those cases were never solved, Mendez was too high profile for his case to be swept aside. After a brief investigation, Darley da Silva and his son Darcy were arrested and convicted of the murder. Each was sentenced to 19 years in prison. But even in death, Mendez could claim victories for his home and his people. To the extensive media coverage his assassination received, several U.S. senators flew down to Brazil to push for change. As a result, the Brazilian government passed laws to protect the rainforest and approved a plan to replant 2.5 million acres of woodland that had been destroyed. In addition, the Chico Mendes Extractive Reserve was created in his honor in the area where he lived. 
Chico Mendez was a brave and spirited activist for both human rights and the environment. He was the guiding force behind the movement to organize indigenous rubber tappers, and he helped raise awareness about the dangers of Amazon deforestation. Thanks in large part to his work, an ongoing effort continues to this day to protect the rainforests of the Amazon and the indigenous people who call it home. At first, I thought I was fighting to save rubber trees, said Mendez. Then, I thought I was fighting to save the Amazon rainforest. Now, I realize I am fighting for humanity. Chico Mendez, um, a labor leader and an environmentalist. In his work, uh, the two are joined together. There's no contradiction. And uh, it's time, right? It's time to... Uh, do something. This is a song from uh, the UFW. This one is for this one is for Solina. De colores, de colores se visten los campos en la Y por eso los grandes amores de mucho 
They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not near. to blame. 